0: Our second reading this morning comes from the second book of Kings, in chapter 5. We hear this story of the warrior Naaman. Listen with me for God's word to us today. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a good man, and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arabians on one of their oh the Aramaeans excuse me on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, "If only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy." So Naaman went in and told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said, and the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. Naaman went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Just look and see how he was trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard uh, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he might learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance to Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage, but his servants approached him and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more, when all he said to you was wash and be clean. So Naaman went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan. according to the word of the man of God, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. He came and stood before him and said, Now, I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So make us attentive to the path you lay before us, give us eyes to see the ways that you are moving, in those places we least expect, and give us ears to listen as your spirit moves in us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Langston Hughes is an author and poet well-known from the Harlem Renaissance years. He had lived in six different American cities by the time he reached 12 years old. By the time his first book was published in 1926, Hughes had already been a truck driver, a cook, a waiter, a farmer, a college graduate, a sailor, and a doorman at a nightclub in Paris. He had traveled to Mexico, West Africa, the Azores, the Canary Islands, Holland, France, and Italy. And yet even before that first book, the perspective gained from those earliest years is evident in a short poem of free, in free verse, run by the publication of the NAACP at that time called The Crisis. Hughes was 17 years old when his poem The Negro Speaks of Rivers was in print. This is it. The Negro Speaks of Rivers by Langston Hughes. I've known rivers. I've known rivers, ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when the dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. Moses knew rivers. In Exodus 2, we hear the one that his mother and sister laid him on in a basket, that very same Nile over which the pyramids were raised, the one that carried him to freedom while his sister stood at a distance to be assured that someone would find him. The Israelites knew rivers. In Joshua 3 and 4, Moses took them up to one, but it was Joshua who led them over the Jordan and into the Promised Land. From in the midst of it, twelve elders carried rocks, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel, and they were set where they camped at the command of God, that they would become a marker for parents to tell their children from generation to generation about how God had led them to safety and freedom until land promised to them. The exiles knew rivers. In Psalm 137, the ones in Babylon, beside which they sat down and wept, for Zion, for the loss of that very promised land, for the death and destruction that conquering armies had wrought, it was on the willows nearby that they hung their harps unable and unwilling to sing their songs in foreign lands. The prophets knew rivers, Amos and Isaiah, those that would flow down with justice and righteousness, those that would fill and rage and roar but would not overwhelm, through which God would carry her people safely as God had done before, those whom God had called by name beloved. The commander of the Aramean army knew rivers. Abana and Farpar were the ones he knew best, likely the ones that fed the springs from which his family drew water for all manner of daily activities, the ones that Naaman defended as part and parcel of his homeland, Aram. And the prophet who was in Samaria, The counsel to the king of Israel, Elisha, he knew rivers too. That same one from which the elders had drawn rocks, and about which parents still told their children. The same one in whose muddy waters John would use to baptize Jesus centuries later. It was to the Jordan that Naaman was sent and told to wash and be clean. There is satire throughout this story, and we see it culminate here. Throughout the story, we have a great warrior who suffered from disease thought to be a curse of the unclean and unworthy. We have a duo of kings who can't help but use this situation to pick one more in a series of quarrels. We see the pomp and circumstance that rode right up to the doorstep of the prophet who didn't even come out be either amazed or intimidated by it, a messenger was sent instead, and the message summarily ended the strut of that warrior peacock. And we hear the voice of God in the midst, speaking up through the recently captured slave girl who, though she had been robbed of her own bodily autonomy, sought to share what she knew so that her master could gain his back. We hear the voice of God speak up through the slaves who accompanied this absurd parade. By virtue of their captivity, certainly, they knew difficulty from ease and could point to this readily. And they did, though carefully, utter the simplicity of what Elisha had suggested their master do. And to his credit, Naaman listened. And in so doing, and despite himself, he was healed. So often we would rather hide than risk that vulnerability. We would go with what we know, and I suspiciously, someone who suggested otherwise. Particularly when our power and our privilege, our prestige, and our place have, over time, habituated us into thinking that this is what we deserve. It is God-given and hard-won. Yet those rivers that Hughes wrote about at such an early age, still with the one who, was so young, had a rootedness and had seen so much, these rivers tell a different story, a longer one. The voice of God speaking up through a poet of the truths and the frailty of our own human agency and the terrorizing excesses of it. Hughes offers a perspective of the span of lifetime over generations, older than the flow of human blood in human veins, over which empires rise and fall when stories of power and privilege of servitude and suffering shift, And through it all flow these rivers, ancient as the world. It is this constancy that leads us to use water as an image often in our life of faith. And not just in our own, central to many of faith, is this most common element. Both life-giving and death-dealing, it is one to which we can all relate. We've all known rivers. It is why in Christian community, water is the substance of one of our most central sacraments. A tangible sign, we say, of an invisible or intangible grace. We sing, water on the human forehead, birthmark of the love of God. On Baptism Sundays, as we remind ourselves of this grace and we situate ourselves in the great cloud of witnesses bearing the same name. Child of God. It is why all of those rivers and lakes and seas mark the stories of our ancient ancestors in the faith, through which they came safely, beside which they mourned, in which they washed and were made clean, from which they net their daily living, across which they were challenged to go, on the shores of which they meet God. I think, too... If the return again and again to these stories of waters goes beyond just the familiarity, it is also an attempt to gain a much-needed perspective. For we notice that water often appears in Scripture at turning points, times when something, some way of being someone must shift from what was and towards what can be. It's the shift of Naaman, from rotting flesh to flesh restored, from entitlement to humility, from despair to relief, and then even a statement of faith. Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel, said this foreigner, this once proud warrior. He did not get there on his own. We often don't. In fact, he would not have gotten there at all if it weren't for those voices, the ones that went unnamed, the ones who widened his view beyond the rivers he knew and to a new one, confronting his bounded expectations with the carefulness of those who know that speaking up is a risk. And lo and behold, because of their courage, he found healing. We want to swim in the waters that we know, just as Naaman did. Those familiar rivers of social connection, those familiar streams of media, those familiar, often invisible, boundaries that we cling to, yet there are voices that are speaking up more and more readily these days with the courage to call us to perspective that is unfamiliar at best and more often deeply uncomfortable. The national body of our denomination, called the General Assembly, meets every other year, and in late June of 2020, this group of pastors and elders denominational staff and mission co-workers, young adult ecumenical and interfaith delegates met by the only means possible in the height of a global pandemic by Zoom. All told it was clunky and abbreviated but some grace can be given because we were all learning something new in that time. This. Meeting took place when the city of Louisville, the site of the PCUSA national office, was early on in grappling with the news of the murder of Rihanna Taylor while she was asleep in her home. It took place in the context of an institution that still grapples with the sins of white supremacy and the ongoing effect on our life together. There was before that assembly a recommendation to commit ministry to ministry's focus on education and advocacy meant to combat systemic violence against black women and girls. In that context and with that perspective, many held great hope that the Spirit might move the institution in new directions of healing and faithfulness. That the institution, that is, the people there called to represent it, did not seem willing yet to listen. That is what it felt like to many who tried to make their voices heard. Black women and pastors, black women, pastors and delegates, former leaders and moderators of the assembly, all who offered their lived experience vulnerability and courage only to feel cut off, shut down, and shut up. When we are not willing to listen, when we only want to swim in the waters that we know and are sure that these are superior to all others, when we are threatened by the voices that speak up to challenge to call to account, to give perspective, to point to a different way. When in all of this, we continue patterns of harm. We miss opportunities to be healed. And we are all in need of healing. Our institutions, our relationships, our community, our nation, ourselves, we are sick from the divisive ways we have learned to be with one another. We are sick from the posturing and the exceptionalism. We are sick from centuries of colonialism and enslavement. We are sick from the trauma inflicted. We are sick from refusing to listen and from never being heard. Jesus said to the terminally ill man, just a bit too far from the pools of Bethsaida where he could find healing, do you wish to be made well? This is the first question, of course. But assume that we do. Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was "Wash." and be clean. The voice of God, speaking up to say that if we are sick and it is healing that we seek, there is a way. Wide to the perspective of voices beyond our own. Experiences beyond our own. Witness to God's healing power beyond our own. In the waters of baptism, there is no separate identity. There is just one, child of God, beloved. In these waters flow a call to repentance and an opportunity for healing and a shared grace. Through these waters flow centuries of stories and people and voices that bind us and that keep us accountable to one another and to God. Held in these, what is it to us to be willing to listen, to seek out, and to amplify other voices, to wash, and to be clean? Amen.